Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Shane Campbell Staten, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, partner in crime, and co host, Arian Darby. In this episode, we take an in depth look at the world of Star Trek. I sit down with Duke University's Dr. Mohammed Noor. Dr. Noor is an evolutionary geneticist and author of the new book, Live Long and Evolve What Star Trek Can Teach Us About Evolution, Genetics, and Life on Other Worlds. We chat about biology, genetics, evolution, and even alien sex. So sit back, strap in, and in the mortal words of Captain Jean-Luc Picard, Engage. Because the Biology of Superheroes podcast starts now. So it's a new year, and I am thinking about the future. Uh, so, Arian, today we are going to explore an entirely different corner of the nerd multiverse. I don't think we've ever even really discussed this topic before in all the time that we've known each other. So I'm going to ask you a question. It's a very important question, one that's destroyed friendships and broken alliances the world over. I'm ready for it. Star Trek? Or Star Wars? My answer would be Star Wars. Oh, God, you broke my heart. You're dead and to me. And he's no longer the co-host of the podcast. You're dead to me. <laughs> Episode 9, <laughs> over and out. So why, why Star Wars over Star Trek? You know, I think there comes a time in a young geek's life <laughs> where he or she needs to make the tough calls, especially in one's youth. And when I was growing up, I had to make a ton of tough calls, whether it was due to time or just financial affordability between a lot of things that in another time or place or dimension I could have been passionate about. Sega or Nintendo? (laughs) Star Trek or Star Wars? DC or Marvel. All the big ones. All the big ones. And none of the money to support both (laughs) at the same time. Or time to support both at the same time. And so when I was a kid and when I was growing up, those were the big choices that I had to make. Whether it was Christmas or TV viewing time or movie watching experience, what was I really going to lean into? Because when I went to the bookstore... I wasn't walking home with Batman and X-Men. It was one or the other. (laughs) And when it came time for Santa to make his run, I wasn't going to get a Genesis and an NES at the same time. Just not going to happen. Not going to happen. No matter how good you've been. No matter how good I've been. Not in the Darby household. So (laughs) to bring it back to the the point of the matter, it it really was just kind of a, a decision I sort of leaned into one way or the other in each instance just based on gut. I chose Nintendo over Sega, and when I was a kid, the first comic I experienced was an X-Men comic, and I chose the X-Men over DC to read. And So the same thing happened with Star Wars and Star Trek, and I I think, you know, even looking back, it felt like a decision between space exploration versus space combat, Mm. and... 
I maybe leaned in the more action-oriented direction. Okay. You wanted to see some stuff blow up is basically what you're saying. Yeah. I just <laughs> okay. wanted to see stuff blow up. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So what about you? So I got to say, between the two, I'm going to go with Star Trek. Star Trek all day, every day. But it's, mo- it's not because of anything inherently wrong with Star Wars. I love Star Wars. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but for me, Star Trek just, there's a lot of nostalgia for me personally that's wrapped up in Star Trek. So I didn't actually watch Star Wars until I was in high school. And I liked it. But Star Trek just had this like more science-driven storyline that just really appealed to me. So I remember like back in elementary and middle school... We didn't have cable, but like right around seven or eight at night, Star Trek The Next Generation would come on. And I remember getting just so excited, you know, when I heard that, um, you know, the intro song, you know, when you see like the pitch black and then you know, it's like sort of really wispy music starts playing and you're zooming around the planets and stars. And then you hear Jean-Luc Picard's voice, you know, come up. And he's like, you know, space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. All right, so those were probably some of my happiest moments as a kid because, it, like, me and my mom used to watch that together. So, you know, that's going to always tug on my heartstrings, and I always got to pick Star Trek over Star Wars. That's me. I could totally see that, and I, I agree with you in terms of just how important nostalgia plays into things because I watched Star Wars at a really young age, but I didn't actually give Star Trek a chance until J.J. Abrams. So uh, we're talking 2009, which is actually kind of incredible, but that, that movie is almost 10 years old now. Yeah. It feels a little more current than that, but that actually was released in 2009. Wow. And I feel really old right now. Yeah, I do too. And I think that when you think about the bigger nerd verse of content that's out there, there are a couple of franchises, literally two right now that are coming to my mind, that you, you really just can't casually wade into, or it's difficult to find like an easy entry point. And one of them, to me, has always been Star Trek. There's just been <laughs> over 700 episodes released over the year where, years where you think, like, oh, if I were to try and catch up on this, I could maybe watch one a day for two years and <laughs> get close uh, and then there's the Doctor Who series. Oh my God! Yes, of course. Do you watch Doctor Who? No, I n- I could never get into it. I just could. I tried to watch. You know, I, I was like, look, I'm gonna do this. I'm dedicating myself. I'm gonna figure out why this is so special. And I got literally halfway through the first episode. I don't even remember which rendition of Doctor Who it was, but I was just like, I just I just don't get it. It were like plastic people moving around and. I just, maybe I'll, maybe one day, but today ain't the day. Yeah, I mean, the closest thing I've probably come to to Doctor Who for myself is that DC Legends TV series. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, they kind of hop in a ship, and they're kind of traveling around to different times, and I feel like that's sort of like what Doctor Who is about, and I'm <laughs> pretty sure that show was inspired by Doctor Who, uh-huh. but, you know, I, I've never really sat down and watched an episode because... Quite frankly, just out of sheer intimidation, like where do you begin? Do you it's start just overwhelming at the beginning and just work your way through for the rest of your life? Uh, <laughs> and the same is some similarly true for me for Star Trek. Like super intimidating. Even like I remember it would come on in the '90s, and it felt like 
Patrick Stewart was on for like forever, like year after year. The show was just going, and you know, he never aged. Like, Timeless. It just, yeah, it was just all <laughs> very just just strange to me. And then to realize that there were decades worth of content before that, um, you know, it just never felt like there was a clear jumping on point for me to just be like, let me check out an episode because of all the history. Um, and I, I feel like a lot of people feel that way, even about comic books and, and that sort of element in general, where they think back, oh, there's like 30, 40 some odd years of history of this. Like, where do you begin? But every once in a while, there's opportunities where the series or show will reboot itself. And over the course of the years for Star Trek in particular, that's happened too. Yeah. But for me, the potential jumping on point that I seized was the J.J. Abrams reboot. Mm-hmm. and. Quite frankly, since I'm not like a hardcore fan, I don't know how people feel about it. I can tell it's already maybe a little bit more action oriented than the original series was and some of the other spin off series that like kind of came after that. Yeah. Uh, so it appealed to kind of the Star Wars intergalactic battle fan in me, but at the same time, very much less focused on exploration, discovery, biology, science, and all that. Uh, so maybe not the most favorite of renditions to the fan. But I'd be curious to know what you think, Shane. Yeah, so I actually liked the the new movies, the newer movies. Um, yeah, I thought they were, I mean, they were very action-y. Um, but for me, I think it was just cool to see the characters from the original series sort of reinvented and rebooted. Uh, and I actually, I thought they did a pretty good, pretty good job with it. And I don't know. I hope I don't know if they have plans to come out with another movie, but you know, I hope they put out at least one more. So today, I want to dive into the biology of Star Trek. To help us out, I reached out to an expert in both biology and Star Trek, evolutionary geneticist Dr. Mohammed Noor of Duke University. So first, let's hear a little bit about his work and what he does. So my name is Mohammed Noor. I am a professor in the general area of genetics and evolution. I've been at Duke University for 13 years, I guess since uh, since junior year in college when I first discovered both genetics and evolution. Loved both topics quite a bit. And um, I do research trying to understand the genetic changes it takes to make new species using fruit fly species. So I study things like the genetic basis of hybrid sterility and mate preference differences among species, things like that. And of course, I'm a hardcore Star Trek fan. <laughs> so in addition to being a world-class evolutionary biologist, Muhammad is also a die-hard Trekkie. So much so that he recently wrote a book about the biology of Star Trek. It's entitled Live Long and Evolve, What Star Trek Can Teach Us About Evolution, Genetics, and Life on Other Worlds. So I asked him about his love of Star Trek and how this book came to be. It's funny, I actually remember the very first time I saw a Star Trek episode. Amazingly, I actually remember it. Um, I was on a trip with my family, and, and this was playing in the background. I was like, what is this? And I was fascinated. I don't even, even remember which episode it was. <laughs> Just being fascinated by it. Like, I want to watch more of this. This is cool. <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. So which, yeah. which would you say is your favorite series? If you had to choose. Is, 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 is it like choosing yeah, between hard. your kids? Yeah, it is. In some sense. I mean, it, it very much depends on what I'm feeling like. If I'm feeling like something really serious, then, you know, Deep Space Nine is always very serious. And if I'm feeling like something just kind of fun, then Voyager is good. I really like the current series, Discovery, too. That's been that's been more sort of action-oriented and things like that. But uh, Or, you know, it's sort of more philosophical 
and obviously they're the next generation. So I mean, to some extent, I like them all. I even like Enterprise, which often seems like the step kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Among Star Trek fans. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, re- so recently, you just you've merged these two loves, right? Your love of genetics and evolution with your love of Star Trek to um, to write this book. Tell me, tell me about this book. Sure. So what happened? Um, actually, it happened in a couple of stages. Um, the first stage was back in 2014 when I went to a, a comic convention for the first time. This was uh, Dragon Con in Atlanta. My daughter got me to go there. She was also a science fiction fan, but not Star Trek specifically. But I remember going and just thinking, wow, this is great. There's so much you know, opportunity not to only meet the, the actors and the writers, but also to hear a couple of talks about the science behind some of these things. So I talked to Garrett Wong, who's actually one of the actors from Star Trek Voyager, but he runs the Trek track at DragonCon. And I asked him, like, would you be interested in me doing some stuff like this with respect to evolution as depicted in Star Trek? Because there wasn't anything like that specifically. And he said, absolutely. They're always looking for new content. They're really like interfacing with scientists. So um, 2016, I did that for the first time there at DragonCon. Around the same time as I was giving that talk at DragonCon, I was approached by Princeton University Press asking if I could do a book for the general public and a talk associated with it. And they asked me what general public talks I give. I said, well, as a matter of fact, <laughs> there is this one. <laughs> and, there, and that was the, that was the origin of the, of this particular book. <laughs> so Aaron, you recently, you read Muhammad's book. Yeah. Yeah, I did. So uh, what'd you, what'd you think? I thought it was cool. I always appreciate it when Especially, you start to talk about higher level concepts with science. There's a way to ground it in something that's relatable to people from kind of an everyday perspective. And even though I'm not a Trekkie, I think a lot of the examples that he gives from the show help to kind of illustrate the concepts in my mind a little bit better in terms of what he's trying to convey. So in the Star Trek universe, this united federation of planets is this multi-species, multi-planetary interstellar republic that's bound by these principles of cooperation and unity and scientific exploration. Now, one of the express missions of the federation is to seek out new life and new civilization. And in the real world, there are scientists all around the globe who have dedicated their lives and their research to this exact same mission. So we talked a little bit about this in our last episode about the alien symbiote Venom. But as somebody who thinks really deeply about this in the Star Trek universe, I wanted to get Muhammad's take on our search for life on other planets. That's a great question. So I think the first, the first part, um, in terms of like what are we likely to find, we're way, way, way more likely to find some sort of microbial life than something that looks even remotely like us or is the same size as us. Mm. <laughs> and it's interesting in that regard. You don't see the Enterprise just going and sampling bits of planets and looking for a life in that sense. They're always just they're just flying about and beaming down and, and meeting individuals rather than, you know, trying to get samples and, and look under a microscope. So that I feel like that's one aspect that probably doesn't match what we will eventually be doing in the true field of exobiology. Um, we can always hope, though. Yeah, it would be wonderful. And I've, I've thought about that in the context of, of SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, right? I, I honestly think we're way more likely to find something just getting samples for, or analyzing samples on Europa or something like that in, in the liquid there than just waiting for a, 
radio signal to say, hey, what's up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Star Trek, it's, it, it's interesting in that regard because they keep encountering so many, and you mentioned this too, that they, that a lot of what they encounter are these humanoid forms. And it's funny that if you've already established that there are a lot of humanoid forms in the universe, which is true in the Star Trek universe. I'm sure it's not true in our universe, but I'm sure it's true in the Star Trek universe. It's interesting that they then don't try to go to very different kinds of worlds to try to find new life. Basically, if you're really trying to seek out new life, why do you keep finding the same sort of thing and going to the same sort of planets that have you know, oxygen and atmospheres and gravity like we have and temperatures within the range that we have? You know, it seems like at that point, if you've already established that those exist and they're plentiful, you should go out to, you know, planets that are more like Neptune. Oh, something really <laughs> See, you know, out there. Yeah, because, I mean, and that's something that I think will happen with respect to um, the search for life on Earth. I think the first goal, and, and we see this already with respect to what NASA is doing, they're looking for life forms that are going to be at least vaguely like us because our sample size of one indicates that, yes, life can arrive in this sort of environment. So we're going to keep looking at planets that have water, that are kind of in, in this range of temperatures to see if that would happen. But once you've established that, it seems like, okay, now it's time to move on and look for new life. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, that Star Trek did not do. Yes. Do you think we can realistically use life on our planet as a proxy for what we might find out there? Some aspects of life on our planet probably are general. So like the, one of the examples I use in my book, for example, is the carbon backbone. That seems pretty likely, right? Because carbon as an atom can bind to up to four other different atoms, and you can have a long chain of carbons, and there's nothing else that's quite as good as, at, that, as, at that as carbon is. And that's what you know, forms the basis of our carbohydrates, our proteins, our nucleic acids, our fats, everything like that. It doesn't really matter if you're going to have exactly those same compounds, but you can make these long-chain complex compounds with carbon that, you know, for example, silicon, which is one down on the periodic table, it doesn't make the same sorts of long chains as easily. You can't have silicon bound to silicon bound to silicon as easily because it's much more likely to break up and bind to oxygen or hydrogen instead. So I think that's one facet that, it, that probably is going to be, I mean, I don't know if you'd say general in the sense that life has to have it, but it's more likely to have that than to have any of the obvious alternatives. Hmm. In contrast, something like, um, like water as the solvent for life. That's, I mean, it makes sense in some level because, you know, water, it, it can dissolve a lot of compounds. It's, it's liquid at the temperatures we encounter, but of course the other plants may have different temperatures. And it's composed of two of the three most abundant elements in the universe, hydrogen being the most abundant and oxygen being the third most abundant. Second is helium, which isn't very useful since it's noble gas. But you could imagine, for example, um, liquid, liquid, um, liquid ammonia, NH3. Oh. You know, nitrogen is still pretty abundant in the universe, and there's still hydrogen in there. It also can dissolve a wide range of compounds, but it wouldn't work on Earth because you know, ammonia is a gas on Earth just because of the temperatures we encounter. But in a colder environment, yeah, that, that, that seems like that would be a reasonable solvent for, for some sort of life form. So I think some elements will be specific to just because of the exact environment that we have here, but others might, uh, might be pretty general, like the carbon example. So generally speaking, it seems like limitations will play a large role in this ongoing search for extraterrestrial life, both in Star Trek and here in the real world, right? Because, I mean, on one hand, you know, we are limited in our understanding of what life must, must be because right? we're limited to, you know, what we have on this planet, which narrows our perspective, but also life itself, wherever it may be and in whatever form, 
is limited by the same principles of physics and chemistry that we are. Right? So I think we, we like to think of ourselves as special, both individually and as species and certainly as living organisms. But ultimately, we're made of the same components that define the rest of the universe, living or not, in pretty much the same proportions as they exist everywhere else. Right? So, I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions here or there. I'm not a physicist. So I don't really know. But, you know, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, you know, those principal components are also in the top 10 most abundant elements in our galaxy. So understanding limitations in both of those contexts, I think, will be really important in this ongoing search. Yeah, and so I'd say one of the interesting things that dawned on me while I was reading Muhammad's book was just this concept of while we're out there searching for extraterrestrial life, we are doing that under the confines and limitations of our own understanding of what life means in our experience here on Earth. And so, you know, he's basically talking about looking for planets that are in the Goldilocks zone, right, Mm -hmm. where they are kind of relatively equidistant to their sun as we are and essentially have the conditions to pretty much approximate what Earth may have looked like at any point in its evolution as a planet Yeah. to essentially signal that, like, hey, we might find something that's similar to what we understand life as being here uh, in this region out in space on this other solar system or, or what have you. And so I... I, I never really thought about the idea of looking for life outside of those limitations and outside of those constructs that we understand life on earth as being but i think that that that's also the importance and uh, you know benefit of things like sci-fi on our imagination to mm-hmm. actually think about the possibilities and then to kind of use science in a, an almost retroactive uh reverse engineering capacity to figure out well, how could that be true? And when you're reading Muhammad's book, it's interesting because he, he takes that uh, sort of approach by looking at what's proposed in theory on the show Star Trek, and he reverse engineer, engineers the possibility of whether or not it could actually be probable from a scientific perspective. Yeah, yeah, and I think even when you're talking about these sort of limitations in this Goldilocks zone, even on the sci- uh, even on the sci-fi side of things, we also see the exact same thing playing out, right? I mean, so in Star Trek, we see that they have these different classifications of planets, and whenever they're exploring, looking for life, you know, looking to make contact with a new species, they're always looking for this class M planet, right? This Earth-like planet, but they have all these other classes, all the way out to I think like class H, which is like generally uninhabitable and yeah so that's it's cool that even in the science on the science fiction side of things right the how they're searching for life is pretty similar to how scientists here in the real world are searching for life as well but in star trek's universe they've moved beyond this what if of extraterrestrial life they found not only life but complex organisms and humanoids with cultural histories and religious beliefs etc and and they made contact you know, with these species across the vast emptiness of space. Unfortunately, in the real world, we don't have the kind of technology that they do in Star Trek. But there are still teams attempting to communicate and pick up communications from alien life, wherever it may exist in the galaxy. So one of the most famous examples is probably the Voyager 1 space probe, which was launched 
back in 1977 by NASA. This space probe has been operational for over 40 years, and it's actually it's still operational today. As a matter of fact, the probe is now almost 13.5 billion miles from Earth. Billion with a B. Making it the most distant human-constructed object from Earth. So both Voyager 1 and its twin, Voyager 2, carry a gold-plated record for any intelligent alien life that happens to stumble across one of them. So this disc contains over 100 images, sounds from Earth, a map of the solar system, and even recorded greetings. So that also means, you know, so if aliens ever land and they try to take over like they did in Independence Day, we can all blame Carl Sagan because he's the one that directed them here. Yeah, so that's amazing. And how do we quantify 13 billion miles? Like, is that outside of the solar system at this point? It's so the last, I think the, the probably the most famous image of Voyager 1 was probably the image that it took uh, through the rings of Saturn as it was sort of leaving into the outer edges of, of the solar system. And just, and. I don't know if you've ever seen this picture. We'll probably post it um, in in association with this episode. But this picture is just absolutely incredible because it's just you see the rings of Saturn as he sort of streaks across the uh, across the image, and then if you look really closely, you see this tiny blue what looks like maybe a star, and that's our planet, right? This just this tiny little blue marble floating in the infinity of space, and it it just really gives you perspective. Uh, and Carl Sagan actually he he wrote some some really deep stuff about um, just reflecting on that image. Um, you know, we're not going to get too deep into it here, but I definitely I recommend everyone check out uh, the Pale Blue Dot by Carl Sagan because it's it is just it's really beautiful and really deep. But when we're when we're talking about this, you know, our own searches, right? So obviously, so Voyager, you know, has I think has played a really big part in this, right? I mean, it's reached farther than any human-made object, right? If we're thinking about our sort of the extension of who we are, you know, I mean, basically like the edges of our boundary as a species are, you know, it's moving along with Voyager 1 as it, you know, as it continues on its journey. But even now, right, we have the SETI Institute back here on Earth, um, which is constantly scanning space for any signs of intelligent life and potential messages coming from distant planets. As a matter of fact, anyone can actually be part of this collective effort by volunteering some of their computing space, right, just on their home computer with, um, with this, this software that SETI, that SETI has. I think it's called SETI at Home. But if we're thinking about Star Trek and all of these alien civilizations, it gets me wondering how many possible alien civilizations are out there, just theoretically speaking. And back in 1961, Dr. Frank Drake proposed what would come to be known as the Drake Equation. Like not, you know, not hotline bling Drake, but, you know, Dr. Drake. So this equation is it's kind of a thought experiment or a Gedanken experiment uh, to explore the concepts and variables that need to be considered in the search for not just life, but radio communicating life on other planets. So it accounts for several different key considerations, uh, so like the rate of star formation, proportion of stars with planets, planets with life, life with intelligence, or like civilizations, um, the proportion of 
those with uh, with civilizations that will actually have the appropriate technology to communicate, and then the length of time those civilizations could send such a signal. Right. So if we think about it, like we've in the grand scheme of the universe, like we've only been able to send these types of signals like less than a blink of an eye, right? I mean, very short period of time compared to everything else. And if civilizations live and die on the same time frames that we do, we could be missing all kinds of signals just because civilizations are living and dying at slightly, yeah, you know, slightly different times along the timeline. Yeah. So, but this equation it produces, it can produce some really, a really wide range of results depending on the estimates used for these rates. And these estimates are really hotly debated, but it's a really valuable thought experiment to ground what it might look like to contact these, you know, any sort of alien civilizations that would have the ability to communicate with us across vast distances. And while we're on the subject of life, I think another interesting note that I picked up on in Muhammad's book was just the challenge of precisely defining the exact limitations and expectations of what life is and isn't. And there seems to be a bit of a gray area. There is a bit of a gray area. And I think it would, surprisingly, I actually think that gray area would depend on the scientists that you're talking to. Uh, So for me, I think that gray area is viruses. Mm. I mean, so viruses, they are essentially, they're basically like these little capsules of DNA, they can't reproduce themselves, right? They need to use cells to do that. You know, so if you, if you're not, if you are technically not reproducing, you know, are you you alive? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so they're basically just like little packets of DNA that like, you know, with syringes attached to them. Yeah. And that, that's what a virus is. Right. But it still finds a way to replicate. Yes. Which is where the confusion is, right? Yeah. I mean, but so does fire, right? And we definitely don't consider fire life. It's interesting. It's almost like life, you know it when you see it. (laughs) Well, I hope we would. I mean, I think that, you know, we've... Yeah, we spent a very long time identifying different species on this planet, but what life might look like on other planets again right it's just this this what like we can try to imagine it right and we can sort of theoretically take all of the principles of physics and chemistry and mathematics that we know and extrapolate like these are the theoretical limitations but quite honestly you, you we just don't know but to your point like fire has very lifelike behaviors right as well as a virus and so I can see where that gray area is troubling, and you know it is interesting to hear that depending on the scientists, some maybe fall in the camp of yes, viruses are living, and others maybe not so much. And it- it's you know widely accepted that viruses themselves, like they are life, but it's probably like the very simplest form of life, right? But I mean, there had to be something before the virus, right? Like right. you know, like it wasn't a, a virus itself that just popped out of the primordial ooze, right? And you know, in the beginning of of life, there were, you know, amino acids, those amino acids turned into proteins, and those proteins figured out a way to synthesize and replicate, right? And that replication process somewhere along the way got packaged up into cells, and then diversified into these ever more complex forms, what Darwin called these endless forms most beautiful that we know now, but how those endless forms might play out in a different place, in a different time, 
who knows, right? I mean, there's always this role. You know, we talk about this a little bit, um, you know, back in our uh, episode on on the Flash of Two Worlds, right? This role of contingency and random chance and shaping, you know, the world that we live in and shaping life on on this planet and certainly other planets. I mean, you know, one of the big parts of of our history right, as a species was the death of the dinosaurs, right? If the dinosaurs hadn't died out, we might not even be here. So, I mean, so does that mean like, a, you know, a humanoid on another planet would have to go through the same process? I, you know, I just, I have no idea. But if we look back at Star Trek, given that we have all of these different species working and living together, there's bound to be some romance, I remember back in the original series, it seemed like Captain Kirk was hooking up with some alien woman in almost every single episode. And who knows how many illegitimate alien babies he has running around the galaxy. But throughout the series, the different series, we meet many human-alien hybrids. So, you know, in the original series, we meet Spock, who's a human-Vulcan hybrid. In Star Trek Voyager, we meet uh, Blana Torres, who's a human-Klingon hybrid. And in The Next Generation, we meet uh, Diana Troy, who's a human-betazoid hybrid. And so based on – so thinking about these different species on different planets that, you know, come together and have romances and then have children, based on what we know about biology and genetics, is this possible? Let's hear what Mahabad has to say. They talked about this a little bit in a couple of series. So the first – human Klingon hybrid that showed up within uh, the next generation. I think her name was Kalair or something like that. But um, she commented that, or somebody asked about whether Klingons and humans or how easily they were infertile. And she said, well, they're infertile, but with a lot of help. And she never clarified what that actually meant. Like, was there actually genetic manipulation in there? Or was it just something about like how the sperm uh, fuses with the eggs and protein difference? It was never quite elaborated, but at least there was an acknowledgement that it isn't necessarily easy to happen. Now, obviously, in real biology, we know that a lot of species do hybridize. I think current estimates are something on the order of like 10% of species currently at some point in time would hybridize. That doesn't necessarily mean that they produce a lot. They may, they may do it, but do it very, very, very rarely. Mm-hmm. But hybridization does happen. Uh, one aspect which I thought was really interesting, and I brought this up in the, in the book as it's just a neat coincidence, there's a tendency that when you look at hybrids, if if one sex tends to be sterile or inviable, it tends to be the XY sex. So it, for humans, that would be the males. Mm-hmm. For say ducks, for ducks, that would be the females, for example. So if we were to assume these are all humanoid uh, and say like Homo something, like I was saying with the previous example, you might expect to see that males are either underrepresented because of some sort of inviability or they're sterile because of some sort of infertility in the series. So I collated using Memory Alpha, which is a collaborative wiki about Star Trek. I, I, coll- I collated all the hybrids I could find there, as well as from my own reviewing of all the episodes. And interestingly, there's a slight excess of female first-generation hybrids across all the really? series. Not specifically significant, but it was really cool. I'm like, oh my gosh, look at that. <laughs> I'm sure the, <laughs> the show writers did not plan that ahead of time. Yeah. There's, there's a slight excess. And it also, if you looked at just the ones which produced offspring, again, a slight excess of female hybrids. That's phenomenal. <laughs> that was amazing. I, I thought that was really cool. That, that pattern is called Haldane's Rule, that pattern that if one sex of hybrid is sterile or inviable, it tends to be the XY sex. <laughs> And that's been, I was documented over 100 years ago, or almost 100 years ago. 
So according to Muhammad, not only are hybrids possible, but the same principles that govern hybridization in the real world seem to be at play in the Star Trek universe as well. So this makes you really think hard about what a species is, right? Just generally speaking. Right? I remember when I was uh, probably an undergraduate, my freshman year, like coming in, my first evolutionary biology class, you know, this question was brought up, what is a species? And typically when we think about species, you know, we say that species are groups of organisms that don't interbreed with each other, right? And that, that's typically referred to as the biological species concept. But species all over the tree of life break this rule, and there's all sorts of hybridization events. You know, and those hybridization events can even lead to entirely new species, you guys, we're talking about interspecies boot knocking, right? <laughs> so I didn't realize this, but real talk, ligers and zonkeys are a thing. <laughs> Go to Google right now. I thought this was completely fictional. Oh, my God. It's real. Zonkey with a Z. Donkey and zebra. And liger. Lion and tiger. It happens. It does happen under very odd circumstances, but Unreal. it happens. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but what about beyond the humanoids? Right? So throughout the different series, we encounter all kinds of crazy life forms. Right? So like vapor clouds and rock monsters and space swimming whale type creatures. You know, we even encounter different type, types of artificial life. So do we have any reason to believe that creatures so fundamentally different than us should be subject to the same rules of evolution that we are? Let's hear what Muhammad has to say about this. That's a great question. A lot of what we know about evolution should still apply exactly the same way. So, for example, let's, let's use natural selection as one particular example. That's you know, obviously one of the big favorites when people are interested in evolution. So in natural selection, it just says that the, the forms that, are, uh, that produce the most offspring will eventually replace the forms that produce fewer offspring. If you have some sort of heredity, right, which uh, I would assume that most species would have some sort of heredity. It doesn't necessarily have to be DNA-based or anything like that. You have some sort of heredity. Uh, and if there's variation among individuals in survival or reproduction that is encoded in that heredity, you would for sure have natural selection. Because natural selection is basically a mathematical inevitability. There's no way to avoid having it. So that should still apply. Uh, genetic drift, which is just this random changes in the abundance of particular forms, again, that's just, it's just mathematical. I mean, there, there's no reason why that should be exclusive to life that we see on Earth versus life elsewhere. So I think those elements would certainly still apply. Now, the differences might come in, in, for example, aspects of the mechanism and especially how heredity works. So with us, like we have DNA-based heredity. Uh, one interesting thing that comes up a lot in Star Trek, I say interesting, and I put this in quotation marks, <laughs> is that often when they have some sort of cloning event, the offspring clone somehow gets the memories of the parents. Mm. That obviously would not be true, given the way we have, right? Because mostly because like our memories are not encoded in our DNA, <laughs> so yeah. they would not be passed on. And so you can use Dolly the sheep. I mean, Dolly the sheep, who is just a clone sheep, presumably does not have the memories of of its mom. Now, what could happen in in principle? Now, so thinking way outside the box here, 
if there was a completely different form of heredity, it may be able to incorporate that sort of memory. Hmm. Right. And right. If it's not DNA based, if it's something that is directly altered by exposure to different stimuli, it is possible you could have that. So, yeah. I mean, that would be something which would be very distinct from anything we see today. I mean, the closest we have to that today is the transgenerational epigenetics, which comes up every now and then, but it's more a curiosity that comes up pretty rarely as opposed to something which just permeates everything. But it's possible in some other sorts of organisms, it's not the simple DNA-based inheritance that we have. Maybe they have a lot more of that. Mm. <laughs> so that would be something that we might see that does not apply on Earth. And so what about synthetic life, right? So in, in Star Trek, they also... There's obviously like nanobots and androids, yeah, and, you know, yeah. and all this is like. Should we expect theoretically, or if there was, you know, a population of, you know, synthetic life forms of what you know, be they robots or androids, nanobots, like should we expect that evolution would work the same way in in those instances as well? Absolutely, absolutely would. As, assuming you have those still those same aspects, if, let's say you have a set of robots and it has a, a series of instructions. And something gets edited in the instructions, which makes it so it reproduces a little bit faster, and it's reproducing in kind. So, it's, again, it has actual heredity of those instructions. It's no different from being DNA-based at that point. If anything, it might even be more direct because it might, it might immediately apply to the same organism even, too. Mm. So, yes, absolutely that, that same sort of thing would apply. And, and I, I, I tossed out an example of that in my book using the nanites from the next generation when Wesley Crusher lets them loose. They eventually start evolving and talking. I mean, one thing that Star Trek does, which is unfortunate, it tends to confuse evolution with acquiring sentience. Uh, and you can have plenty of evolution without having any sort of self-awareness or sentience or anything like that. So that, that was, that's an unfortunate thing. They tended to always conflate those, those two things together. It's like the more, the more, th- the more uh, an organism, e- quote-unquote, evolves, like the closer they yes. get to, to what we recognize in the, ourselves. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Whereas, like... Amoebae have been evolving for four billion years, and presumably they're not sentient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> yeah I, I certainly have never had a conversation with one. I can say that. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It'd be interesting to have one, though. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So it's fascinating to me to, to think about evolution in this framework. Right? As long as there are key parameters in place, right? variation, heritability, and reproduction— Evolution is simply a mathematical inevitability. So regardless of whether you're made of carbon or nitrogen or even metal in circuits, actually, you know, I mean, even now, I mean, there are sub sub branches of evolution where people use program simulations. Right. So they're evolving these electronic populations on on computers to understand these the basic fundamental processes that drive uh, that drive evolution. And so the idea would be even though we can't necessarily predict what species will evolve into, the universal thought would be everything has evolved from something at some point. Yeah. Essentially, I mean, evolution is, you know, is essentially changed through across generations, um, you know, for the most part. I mean, even on this planet, we can't predict what things will evolve into for the most part, right? Because evolution you know, is not a forward-looking process, right? Things aren't evolving towards anything. They're evolving in response to things. That's cool. And I know we brought up the subject of DNA. So, so where are we with understanding DNA? Because there was a project going on, right? Like trying to basically 
understand the entire I guess code of DNA for a human. Yeah, so the Human Genome Project. Genome Project. Yeah, that um you know the the project was picked up. It's it was started in 1990 and was officially finished uh, in 2003. So you know, we've had the human genome for for a really long time. But we are still learning a lot about this blueprint that we know as the genome, like what it means. I mean, so Mohammed mentioned this idea of epigenetics. Yeah, so this idea of epigenetics, right? I mean, it's this sort of non-genetically based way of tuning gene expression, right? So, you know, if you can change gene expression, right, without having to evolve genetically speaking, right? I mean, that's a, you know, a completely different way that an organism can respond to its environment. And I think we're, we're just now starting to really understand the role that this epigenetic modification plays in the process of adaptation and evolution. I mean, ultimately, I think Star Trek gives us a lot to think about, right? And I think it, it really challenges us to look towards the future. Uh, and I think, you know, the the future that it lays out is actually, I mean, it's just this really beautiful concept at the, at the end of the day. Um, but I wanted to get Muhammad's opinion on why this series has lasted for so long, because it's been decades and it's been many different series, many different movies. Yeah, so why has this been so penetrating in our culture? Let's hear what he has to say. Well, why do you think Star Trek has endured so long? What sort of lessons do you think it can teach us about the future of science and civilization? It's a very positive view of the future overall. I mean, going back to the original series, but pretty much, pretty much all the series, it's a very positive view that, that Earth has all come together. We all work as one. We're out there. We're, we're exploring. And we're excited about, like, basic science. We're just out there to understand the universe around us. So it has a great appeal. It's a very positive view of what could be in the future and just generally speaking they tend to have pretty deep episodes it's not just about like showing up and shooting some aliens or something like that they they tend to have you know there's social commentary in episodes there's interesting political executions i don't mean political execution like killing people i mean <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> executing good political drama yeah <laughs> but there are some of those too yes <laughs> but I think all those things together just really help it stick where, you know, it's, a lot of people can watch it and they can enjoy it. And if they like science, then they, they appreciate the basic science to it and the attempts to be sort of scientific. If they're more on the social science side, they really appreciate the, the politics and social commentary and sociology. And just, you know, the aesthetics of it are pretty good if you're more from the humanities. So I think overall, it just has something for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So, I mean, basically... You know, I think Muhammad lays it out. Star Trek is just better than Star Wars. That's really not what I picked up. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what he said, though. Kind of said if you like textbooks and I think he said if you're sophisticated, you want to get out into the world and just look at you want to think deeply about things. Then this is your show. Then Star Trek is better than Star Wars. You need a sleep aid unless you're. Like a simpleton and <laughs> just <laughs> oh, oh, both are great, but this has been fun. Um, yeah, it has, and I, I got to be honest. In all seriousness, after sort of diving into the Star Trek universe uh, a bit more, just in preparation for this episode, it, it certainly piqued my curiosity in terms of wanting to explore the series more. And, you know, I, I watched a couple episodes from each of the various seasons just to get a flavor and a feel for 
uh, kind of what their stories were about and how the episodes flowed and, and what it was that they talked about. And it is, it, it's very cerebral, but it's, and for me, especially as an adult now, a lot of the questions and the things that they're thinking about are interesting. Uh, and even from kind of a scientific perspective, just some of the ideas that they're postulating and sort of kind of debating in the midst of chaos at times as well is, is kind of uh, intriguing. So, uh, you know, I, I, I can't say that I'm going to be a, a full-fledged fan. I think there still is that hesitation with just really kind of diving in and, and going in full force, but I, I, I'm certainly not going to avoid anything Star trek in the future. Um, and, you know, I owe a lot to Dr. Muhammad and some of the, the stuff that I've seen to kind of get me back into that. So it's been cool. Cool. Yeah, I think, you know, we get enough episodes in. I, I think I think you're going to get hooked. Maybe, maybe not. We'll, we'll see how this Star Wars thing keeps going. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, before we leave, I wanted to um, ask Muhammad one more question, uh, and that is uh, about his favorite potential superpower so let's let's hear what he has to say so i have one last question for you uh and it is an extremely important and penetrating question are you ready oh i'm ready if you could have any superpower what would it be and why See, everybody always says, like, they want to fly, but, I mean, I'd be scared to death. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that would be so scary. Like, what, you know, how would, if you didn't control it perfectly, then it would be really bad. Um, I guess as a biologist, I would love to be able to somehow communicate with other organisms. Ah, uh, okay. That would, like be, that. that would be really cool. Right? I can find out, like, what, what does this thing think it's doing right now? Yeah. <laughs> That would be fascinating. I think that would be really cool. Yeah. I'd probably pick that one. Would Would you use it to communicate with the fruit flies that you work with in the lab? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. Animal communication. I, I like that answer. It's like very kind of Aquaman or uh, or you, you remember uh, Captain Planet, like the, the – um, was it the kid from India in the monkey? The kid that had heart. Yeah, yeah. There was like you know people like moving earth and like setting fire to stuff. And he's like, yeah, and I, and I care about animals. Yeah, but you noticed Captain Planet wouldn't come until old heart kid gotta got in there and heart. was just like heart. He was the last one. Yeah, you gotta care. Yeah, you gotta care. Well, thanks again for being in the lab, man. As always, it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. And. um you know, we'll get you. Uh, we'll get you in, into Star Trek over over Star Wars. You'll you'll get over it. You'll 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 get there. We'll see. But I think there is only kind of one way to uh, in this episode. It's uh, live, live long, long and, and prosper. I really hope you enjoyed episode nine of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. Be sure to rate us on iTunes and leave us a comment. Let us know what you think of the series so far. You can also join our Facebook or Instagram pages or follow us on Twitter at Superbio Podcast. So with that, thanks again and stay curious.